Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. We compare God's Word to a compass or a map. You ever heard that analogy, God's Word? It's like a, a compass, and it'll direct you in the places you should go. It's like a map. It'll show you the things that you need to do. And the idea is that if you're willing to submit to it, the Word of God will lead you where you need to go in life. In fact, we speak of God's Word solely in its utility. How does it function? What does it do? What does it do for me? I remember being a kid and going to a VBS, and we started to sing this song, and it said, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Right? You remember those? The idea was that God's Word was to help me become mature, which is true enough. But it's interesting to me that when we talk about the Word of God, we only speak of it in its utility for what it does for us. It's telling that the modern evangelical posture to the subject of God's Word is simply to understand its need or my need to be disciplined in reading it. But there's something a little bit off kilter that when the Bible speaks about the Word of God, it describes God's unthwarted, decretive will. We seldom speak of God's Word, the decreed words of God, as they're spoken of in the Bible. That is, as the effectual words of God that bring about His purpose in the earth, in real time, in our lives. Consider the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 23. You'll recognize the reference Balaam's donkey. This is what Numbers 23 records to us. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? When God speaks, he acts, and when he promises, he fulfills. That's the orientation of the scriptures to the word of God, that when he speaks, it happens. See, when the Bible speaks about what God says, it speaks a reality that should come to pass, that will come to pass. And it's only secondary consideration of how we kind of align ourselves to it. See, this morning, as we kind of investigate the lives of of Moses and Aaron, we're going to find that our two leaders are brought into conformity with the decretive will of God. They're brought into submission to this decretive will of God. Here's what I think we're going to see this morning, is that God's word always wins. God's word always wins. Not questionable about the things that God has promised. Will they come to pass or will they not? Surely they will come to pass. Surely we can trust that they will. We're going to see this in two different movements. In verses 1 through 7, we're going to see that God reassures Moses and he obeys. And then in verses 8 through 13, that God foreshadows his power over Pharaoh. 
as we just read in verses 8 through 13. I want to dive in this morning. I want to get to our point here this morning. In verses seven, or chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, God reassures Moses and he obeys. Look at verse 1 with me in Exodus chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. See, the first thing we see here is that God establishes roles for Aaron and Moses. In verse 1, he tells Moses, he's going to say, you're going to be like God to Pharaoh. Specifically, he means that that Moses has become God's representative, that Moses is to be as the presence of God to Pharaoh, even to the extent that Moses doesn't speak on his own, that he has a prophet named Aaron who goes along with him. Remember that this was the intention of God from the beginning, right? That, That God was going to put his image upon this race of mankind, and that mankind was going to kind of rule over his his creation, right? And and Genesis chapter 1, he tells Adam and Eve, he says, rule the earth and subdue it, right? Bring uh, your uh, God-given image-bearing presence to this world and bring it into submission. And now we kind of see this restoration as, as God is going to bring dominion through his servants, Moses and Aaron. Now, of course, what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve do differently. They contradict the plan of God and listen to the word of a talking snake rather than the all-powerful word of God. Now, notice what happens here in verses 1 and 2. Twice we see that God speaks to Moses, and he says, your brother Aaron. You know, there's something, when we see repeated terms in the scriptures, we should often ask, why is that repeated? Why does God describe Aaron as Moses' brother? And we remember last week, as, as Brian preached, that Moses was feeling on his own. He was feeling kind of left out. He, he described himself in chapter 6, verse 13 and 30, as having uncircumcised lips. He felt at odds with his brothers. He felt separated from the nation of Israel. He felt he wasn't at home in Egypt. He wasn't at home in Israel. And God is using this subtle reminder just to say, no, no, you're not on your own. You're here with your brother. I'm here with you. And so what God does in verse 2 is he directs Moses' role. Moses was to speak whatever God commanded him. And that's it. That's what Moses' role was. It's pretty simple, right? Moses was to be a glorified tape recorder before Pharaoh. He's to hear what God speaks to him, which, by the way, it seems like he's the only one that God is speaking to. (coughs) Excuse me. Step two was to tell those words to Aaron. Excuse me for a second. And step three 
was for Aaron to say those words to Pharaoh. It's a pretty straightforward job that Moses and Aaron have. Moses is simply to be a conduit for the words of God. You shall speak all that I command to you. He's not to add to it. He's not to try to convince Pharaoh. He's not to argue with Pharaoh. He's not to correct Pharaoh. He's not to take away from it. He's not to try to sweeten the deal. He's not to decide what goes in the fine print of the contract. In fact, this role is only going to work if God does what he promises he's going to do in verses three through five. Look at what he says he's going to do. He says there, chapter 7, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I uh, will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. The Egyptians, verse 5, shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Reminds us of last week in chapter 6, all of the things that God promised he was going to do. Chapter 6, verse 6, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people, in verse 7. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. (coughs) What specifically does God promise Moses that he's going to accomplish Verse 3, he says he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he doesn't listen. This isn't new. We were to go back to chapter 4, verse 21. God told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. He'll continue to do so. We'll see this language used all the way through Exodus chapter 13. But the portion we haven't seen yet is that Pharaoh will not listen. We get the feeling from chapter 5 that Moses thought that he would just kind of show up and demand that, that God or that Pharaoh would let the Israelites go. And sure enough, he would concede. He would just do it. As Ryan pointed out a few weeks ago, Moses' expectations were his biggest obstacle for him to overcome. But here, God is promising to deliver Israel by Pharaoh's obstinance. In fact, we saw it last week in chapter 6, verse 1. With a strong hand, Pharaoh will send them out. And with a strong hand, Pharaoh will drive them out of his land. See, God will so harden Pharaoh's heart against the purpose of the Lord that he'll actually accomplish the purpose of the Lord. He will lay his hand. Secondly, he'll lay his hand on Egypt to deliver Israel in verse 4. We know that this means 10 plagues that are coming, right? There's all kinds of flies and frogs and all kinds of fun stuff coming up. Um, and, and God is predicting that he's going to bring his strong hand of judgment against the Israelites. But here, God is promising that he will directly affect the Egyptians to bring about the release of these Israelites. And finally, in verse 5, it's not just that he says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's going to lay his hand on the Egyptians. He's going to prove himself to be Yahweh in verse 5. Look what he says there in verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. We remember just a few chapters back when Moses shows up in Pharaoh's court, and he says, Yahweh says to let my people go. And Pharaoh looks back at him and he says, and who is Yahweh? I don't, I don't know this God that you're talking about. 
to the remainder of our chapters 7 through 15, were going to tell us all about who Yahweh is. In fact, we could say that this is the primary theme of the book of Exodus, that God brings salvation and judgment through the disclosure of his name and person. That as God reveals himself to people, it either hardens or softens them by his word, according to his will. We're going to get through this, I promise, right? Sorry, this sermon would normally be 30 minutes long, but with all the coughing, it's going to be 45 minutes. So we'll get through it, though, I promise. Verse 6 shows us that Moses and Aaron do what God said. Look at what verse 6 says. It's so simple. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses' obedience is something that's new here. We didn't talk about this too much uh, when we went through this a, a few weeks ago, but in his previous interaction with Pharaoh, Moses kind of vaguely heard what God was saying, but didn't necessarily specifically apply it. Uh, Alec Mateer kind of draws this out in his commentary. He says that he took the wrong delegation. And so when he went with, to meet with Pharaoh, he took Aaron with him, but God had told him in chapter three, verse 18, to take the elders of Israel with him. He adopted the wrong approach. He used the wrong words. And in chapter 5, verse 1, there are different language than what he was told to say in chapter 3, verse 18. What's notable with him is, is that God told Moses to say that the God of the Israelites has met with you. And Moses never said this. He made the wrong request. In chapter 3, verse 18, God told Moses to say, let us go away for three days that we might sacrifice to our God. And instead, Moses shows up in chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, the God of the Israelites says, let my people go. He changed the fundamental message of what was being said from what he was asked to do in chapter 3. And so what's happened is that Moses has really fumbled this thing. We can't say that he did so on purpose, but it wasn't what the Lord had described to him in chapters 3 and 4. We might say, okay, big deal. He got a few words wrong. He kind of messed some things up. You know what it's like to be nervous, and, uh, you know, that happens. But remember, Moses would be forbidden entrance into the promised land because he didn't speak to a rock. He hit it with his staff because words are important. Words are important in Moses' work and in ours. In fact, from this point until chapter 3, we're not going to see a freelancing Moses anymore. The only words that Moses is going to speak for these next, what, five or six chapters are going to be verbatim what God has said to him. Moses isn't going to feel this freedom to kind of freelance on what God has told him. He's only going to speak what God has directed him to say. Verse 7, we have this strange passage. It's like the author just wants us to know these guys are old. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. They have hair coming out of their ears. That's what age they are. These guys are octogenarians as if our author wanted to prove how bad of an idea this was, the weakness of it all. 
I don't mean to offend any octogenarians who may be here or listening. But we recognize, as we've said so many times, that God uses foolish plans to show his divine power and authority. Think about this plan. Consider what the plan is, right? God has grabbed these two 80-year-old men, and he's going to send them into the oval office of the world at that time. Now you think, there's an 80-year-old man every day entering into the oval office. In fact, that's been the case for the last few presidents, right? The foolishness of this is that two 80-year-olds are going to walk into this power center And they're going to speak these words from God about the coming demise of the most powerful man in the world. It's foolishness. If you and I were to sit down and devise a plan of how we would tear down the most powerful nation in the world, what would we sit down and do? Would we chart out some path to victory? Would it involve two 80-year-old men coming and just speaking words? No, probably not. Paul speaks of the foolishness of the cross. Because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We've, we've already seen that God perfects his power amidst weakness. But the most notable example of all was a single man born in squalor, hated by religious authorities in a vassal state, overcoming sin and death. He uses weak things to establish his strength. So we have this weak plan. And in verses 8 through 13, though, God's going to foreshadow this victory. He's going to show us just a little glimpse of what might happen down the line. And we read this passage when we started out this morning, but I'm going to read it again, verses 8 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts, for each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. See, the first thing is that God speaks to Moses again. God knows exactly what's going to happen. He's going to come before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to ask for a sign. By the way, this isn't foreign to our scriptures, right? When Jesus showed up, uh, the Jews would start asking him for signs. It was a way to validate the message that he was coming uh, to show that, hey, this is real. This is legit, right? And so Pharaoh asks for this sign. But we recognize that it's not like Pharaoh's just going to believe. What Pharaoh's heart really is here is to expose Moses and Aaron as hucksters, as fraudulent, Hey, come and perform some sign, and then I'm going to reproduce that sign through my sorcerers and magicians. I'm going to show that you're just another huckster, that you're just another magician. You're nothing special, and your message is nothing special. So Aaron and Moses come in in verse 10. 
Once again, verse 10 highlights that they do just as the Lord commanded. They are completely obedient to his word. Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes the serpent, just like in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Now we need to remember, why, why a serpent? Why a snake? You know, uh, if you look on the, the slides here this morning, we have a picture of Pharaoh's headdress, right? What is that on the front of his headdress? A snake, a cobra. Because it's a kind of an homage to the goddess Wajet, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who's associated with royalty. This is the goddess who established royalty. So these pharaohs direct their power or or kind of take their power from her as they're given this power to rule and to lead. So there's the serpent that's tied to Pharaoh. But that's not it, is it? Because as we understand our Bibles, we understand this isn't the first snake that's ever shown up in the scriptures, right? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are deceived by the lies of a serpent that comes into the Garden of Eden. It was the snake that was said that would be crushed. And so any encounter with a snake here in in Exodus chapter 7 is like this gospel showdown that's happening between the, the deception of Satan and the snake crusher, Jesus Christ, who would be coming. So Pharaoh summons his magicians. Notice how many words there are that describe what these guys are. Pharaoh summoned the wise men, the sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt. There's all kinds of people here who are just into deception. And he summons them and they reproduce this miracle. This has been Pharaoh's plan all along, right? We're going to show Aaron and Moses, we're going to undermine their authority by just reproducing these supposed miracles that they're doing. But Pharaoh's plan backfires, verses 11 and 12. These Egyptian magicians reproduce the miracle, but they're rebuffed. Here's something that's interesting that's happening in this passage. There's a different word. Exodus 4, we see snakes. And it's like a word for like little snakes. I still don't like little snakes, but they're little snakes, right? The word here in Exodus 7 is big snakes. In fact, in the... Greek translation of the Old Testament, they actually use the word dragon here. And so there's these monstrous snakes that are transformed from the staff. And what happens then is is the the snake of the Israelite staff, of of Moses' staff, comes along and just swallows up the snake of the Egyptian magicians. Which is weird, right? I mean, what what do snakes normally feed on? the souls of children or something else. I don't know. I hate snakes, by the way. I just want to get that out there. They feed on rats and and small animals. For it to swallow another snake is weird, right? It's outside of their behavior. It would imply that Moses' snake was more powerful and dominant than that of the Egyptians. This is kind of a showdown between the God of these Israelites, these slaves, these no names, and the God of the most powerful nation, or the gods of the most powerful nation in Egypt, in the world, in Egypt. See, Pharaoh thinks he has exposed Moses and Aaron as fakes. 
But in the end, the sign itself backfires on Pharaoh. The implication is clear. The God of the Hebrews is about to swallow up Pharaoh and Egypt, that this God is a Pharaoh eater. He's going to destroy this nation. He's going to bring it to utter ruin. And we would think that this would capture Pharaoh's attention, but it doesn't. In fact, that's what happens in verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You see, I, I love the word still at the beginning of verse 13. It implies that even with the evidence of the swallowed snake right in front of his eyeballs, that Pharaoh still couldn't process the information of what was happening. It's this ironic bit of this text that Pharaoh is seeking to make moves to keep himself in the driver's seat, but in so doing, he's not in the driver's seat anymore. Pharaoh's doing everything he can to protect his power, and he has no capability of protecting his power. Isn't that true? See, how do we make sense of this text? How are we to understand what's, what's happening here? See, the Lord's word has come true. He's he's predicted it, and it's coming to pass. If we were to kind of fast forward to the right a little bit in the book of Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah would write this. He said, who has spoken, and it has come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? The Lord spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to Aaron, Aaron spoke to Pharaoh, and it all came to pass because of God's powerful, decretive will, that his word is accomplishing exactly what he purposed it to accomplish. See, if we were to kind of back for, uh, move backward in our text all the way to the book of Genesis, we would find a thread running through the the scriptures from end to end about God's powerful will, powerful word. What he says comes to pass. What he predicts comes true. One of the things that he predicted in Genesis chapter 3 is that he would crush snakes Genesis 3.15, they call it the proto-evangelum. It's the, the first stating of the gospel. It's this promise that God gives to Adam and Eve that someday a seed from Eve would come along that would crush the head of the serpent. That his word would finally and fully come true. See, really what the scriptures boil down to is these two different sets of truths. There's the untruth that's stated in Genesis chapter 3 by Satan himself. See, Satan gained the upper hand in the garden by telling lies while tempting Eve to eat fruit, which God had forbidden. He had told her these two different lies. First, that she wouldn't die, that if she disobeyed God and ate the fruit that she had been forbidden to eat, that she wouldn't die like God said she would. In fact, the second lie was that she would become like God, knowing good and evil. In fact, when Jesus would later describe Satan in John chapter 8, he describes him as the father of lies. See, this is the problem with untruth or half-truth. 
anything less than a true accounting of what God has brought about in the world is, is less than the truth that God has given us. Think of all the places where people readily traffic in error to affirm what they want to be true. They make connections between correlating pieces of evidence, but they never deal with causalities. They assume connections that are there because the sinful heart desires what it desires, and they buy into a lie rather than the truth. But when we consider the opposite, that God is always true, that his word always comes to pass, we have hope. Isaiah 46, I love this passage. Isaiah says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my plan will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. See, what's happened is the lies that Satan has brought about has actually brought about the truth-telling of Jesus Christ. The the lies that started in the garden have actually perpetuated this coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, so that he would be sent to death. He would be put to death on a cross by wicked, sinful men. He would stand for the truth faithfully to his father so that they would put him to death. John describes him as the word of God. He was with God. He was God. His absolute conformity to his father's will, perfect submission to his father, such that he says in John chapter 5, the son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So there is no dividing line between the will of the Father and the will of the Son. Jesus is the Father's word made manifest. He's the fulfillment of our full and final redemption. He's gone to Calvary. He's confronted the untruth that started in Genesis 3. See, God crushed the snake through the faithful life of his son, the word. And when Satan breathed lies in the garden, Jesus spoke truth all the way to Calvary. God speaks, always comes to pass. The thing I love about this passage in Exodus chapter seven is there is a statement twice in this text that highlights the obedience of Aaron and Moses. If we see in verse six, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. We have here is a picture of God's decreed will, what will happen, and his submissive servants to the words that were spoken. Moses is no longer freelancing. He's no longer doing his own thing. He's living in submission to God's powerful words. This morning, as we gather around this text, we recognize that trusting God's word is participating in his victory. Trusting God's words is participating in his victory. You and I, we're we're tempted to do this, aren't we? We're tempted to twist God's message. 
just change little pieces and parts to serve myself, to serve my design. We have friends, perhaps, that describe that God wants me to be healthy and happy. We come from this tradition, or they come from this tradition that has kind of twisted the words of God, take them just a little bit off their axis. I've been reading in the book of Galatians recently, and there's this passage in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul has this showdown with Peter. And it's kind of fun because you're invited into this like juicy bit of controversy, right? But Paul uses it for his purpose. He wants to show that Peter's actions, as he says, were out of line with the truth of the gospel. The way he says it is they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That, that Paul saw such a simple thing as who you eat with as being something that showed your true belief in Jesus. That he's highlighting in Peter's life to say, Peter, you're, you're not getting it. You're not living out what you say you believe. The word of God hasn't fully settled on your heart and on your mind. That's what happens with us, isn't it? There's some part of us out of conformity with the truths we say we believe. There's some part of us that that just hasn't found it yet, that just hasn't come into alignment with what God has spoken. Let me ask this question to us this morning. What would it be like to just believe that God is actually going to do what he said he was going to do? How would it change our everyday life if we actually believed that, that God was going to save us? Take this promise. God says, Jesus says that someday the Son of Man will come in the clouds. All the earth will see him. He'll come and he'll bring his saints to himself and he'll judge the wickedness of the earth. How would actually believing that statement change my Monday morning? If I believed that Jesus was to come and return and bring recompense to his faithful servants and bring judgment to his wicked uh, detractors and unbelievers, how would that change how I went about my Monday morning? I'd be able to push off the nonsense a little bit with more clarity, wouldn't I? The inner office craziness that happens, the, the water cooler talk just kind of gets dismissed because Jesus is coming. The controversy surrounding my finances somehow gets lighter. The things that weigh on my heart about my kids simultaneously become lighter and heavier. I don't know how else to describe it. I know that Jesus is returning, so I have to train them. But I can also only train them to a certain extent. It's the Lord who's going to work in their hearts, not me. See how everything comes into clearer focus? When we submit ourselves to God's decretive word that will happen, that he will accomplish, everything becomes clearer, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I I feel like I'm longing for clarity anymore. I need clarity more and more each day. It seems like life gets more and more confusing. 
the issues become more and more complex. I feel like I know less and less than I did five years ago, mostly because I've forgotten a lot of stuff, but I didn't really understand it to begin with either. The thing I need more than anything is to understand that when God speaks, he acts. When he promises, he fulfills. And his words, I can take them to the bank. I can trust in them. I can know that they're true and right and good. I wonder if we might be those kinds of people who have this otherworldly hope that actually informs how we go about our life. I want to pray to that end. I pray that the Lord forms us from his scriptures, from his words, and that he honors his name in our midst. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask now, allow us to hear your truths and to live under your truths accordingly. Allow us to respond with faith to the words that you speak to us. Allow us to cling to the promises that you've given us. Lord, we thank you that it was by your word that Jesus came and defeated the liar, the father of lies, Satan. It's by your word that even now he stands and he speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He offers intercessory prayer before your throne even now on our behalf. Father, we thank you for these truths. Help us to know them. Help us to trust them. Help us to navigate the complexities of our era and our time through rich faith with you in you, in your promises and your words. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.